Amen. It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is God-breathed. That all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it's all inspired by God. That though God used human authors to write this book, that ultimately it's God who authored it. And because all scripture is inspired by God, all scripture is necessary for us and it's profitable to us. There's not a single verse. There's not a single verse that we could find in here and say we can get rid of that one because it's really not important because we really don't need it because all scripture is God-breathed. And so this is the reason why the normative way through which we preach the Bible here at the Austin Stone is that we preach through entire books of the Bible. Most recently, we went through the books of 1 Peter and the book of Jonah. And starting today, this week, and I imagine for the next couple of years at least, we're gonna be going through the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. We're gonna be looking at the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter one today. It tells us the genealogy of Jesus. I was gonna read it for us, but somebody thought these verses were so important that they wrote a song about it. And so since it's summer, I thought, what the hell, I'll just play the song instead of you sitting there listening to me read 16 verses, all right? So let's play that song. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob, he had Judah and his kin. Well, then Perez and Sarah came from Judah's woman, Tamar. Perez, he brought Hezron up and then came. Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who Solomon by dead Uriah's wife Solomon, well, you all know him He had good old Rehoboam Followed by Abijah Who had Asa Asa had Jehoshaphat Had Joram, had Isaiah Who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah Followed by Manasseh Who had Amon, who was a man Who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfather Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. And then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab then. He had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. Isn't that so good? 
All right, it's called Matthews Begats. I know all of you want to download it right now. It's by an amazing artist named Andrew Peterson. Um, if you're old school, you remember this section of scripture as the begats, because that's how the old King James Version said it, that Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. Now the question is, why study the begats? Why study the genealogy of Jesus? If I were to ask every single one of you here today, hey, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? What's your favorite passage of scripture in the Bible? I doubt very many of you would say, you know, I just love the begats. The begats are my favorite. But I wanna show you today that truly all scripture is God-breathed, and every single verse and every single passage of scripture in this book is profitable for us. God knew that as Christians living in this world today that we would need the begats, that we would need to know the genealogy of Jesus. So I wanna spend our time showing you two absolutely critical truths that we see in the genealogy of Jesus. First is this. First is that our God is the God who keeps his promises. That's the first thing that we see when we read the genealogy of Jesus, that our God is a God who keeps his promises. And the second thing that we see is that we receive God's promises. We become the recipients of those promises of God by grace, by grace alone. So let's look at the first critical thing that the genealogy of Jesus shows us. Shows us that our God is the God who keeps his promises. Let's look at verse one again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is Matthew saying right out of the gates in 1-1? I want us to notice three words. Christ, David, and Abraham. Christ, David, and Abraham. The first and the main thing that Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus is the Christ. That's the first thing he wants you to know. Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, okay? It's not as though Joseph and Mary Christ had a child named Jesus and they named him Jesus Christ. Christ is the divine title for Jesus. It means the Messiah. It means the chosen one. It means the appointed one. And notice verse one also has David and Abraham in there. So why is Matthew, before going into the chronological order of Jesus' genealogy, why does he first mention that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham? Here's why. Because hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God made Abraham a promise. And he made David a promise. It's called the Abrahamic covenant and it's called the Davidic covenant. And really, the entirety of the Old Testament, that's what it's all about. God making promises to his people and us seeing how God orchestrates everything in order to fulfill his promises. And so first, the Abrahamic covenant, what was it? It's found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God made this promise to Abraham. God told a man who was married to a barren wife that he was going to grow him and to be a great nation. And not only that, but that in him, that through his lineage, all the families of the earth is going to be blessed. That's the promise that God made to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And what's the Davidic covenant? It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
verse nine, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Look at verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this is the promise that God made David that in David's line, through his lineage would come a king and not a king who would rule for a little bit and then die and then the people wonder, I wonder who our next king is going to be. I wonder if he's going to be a good king or a bad king. I wonder how long he's going to reign. But instead, there's going to come a king, the king of kings that would sit on the throne and rule his kingdom forever. And so God made these promises that there would one day be born the Christ, the appointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah that would fulfill these promises. And Matthew, right out of the gates, in Matthew 1.1 is saying Jesus is the Christ. He's saying don't miss it. He's saying I'm telling you from the very first verse, Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the one through whom every family of the earth will be blessed. And he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's the king of kings whose reign will know no end. He's saying our God is a God who keeps his promises. He said that the Messiah would come and he has come. That's what Matthew is saying from chapter one, verse one. Now in hindsight, you and I sitting here, we might think, okay, great, Jesus is the Messiah. God kept his promise, great. But what we have to realize is that it took God over 2,000 years to keep his promise. And so think about as if you were part of God's people living back in the Old Testament, it wasn't as simple and as easy as that. It's always easy to look back and say, oh, God did that, right? But what if you were living there? Now you had all Old Testament prophets that God would send and, he would, and these prophets would be raised up and they would say, I know things are bad, I know things look bad right now, but remember, God is sending the Messiah. I know things look terrible right now, but remember, God is sending the Messiah through whom every family of the earth will be blessed. He's sending the king, right? But the last 400 years before Jesus was born, God was silent. He didn't send any prophets. After the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and before Jesus was born, those are 400 years, called 400 years of silence. And so think about if you lived during that time, how would you feel about God's promises? We would think, well, maybe God forgot about his promises, right? And we would think maybe God changed his mind because of our sinfulness. Maybe he took his promises back. And look at the Davidic line, the line through which God promised the coming of the true king that would reign forever. Look at verses six through 10. It starts out strong. We see David in there, right? We know David. We know Solomon. You might even know Uzziah. You might even know King Hezekiah in verses eight through nine. You might even know King Josiah in verse 10. But then look at starting in verses 12 through 16. How many of you have heard of Jeconiah? Sheol, Teal, anybody? Anybody need, want to name your kid Sheol, Teal? How about Azor or Mathan? All the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. When you look at the Davidic line, the line through which the true king of kings was promised, you see 
King David, you see King Solomon, Uzziah, and and Josiah, kings you've probably heard of, but then eventually somewhere in there, the people listed you've never even heard of before. And what's more is that they're not even kings anymore. They're just people. We all know Mary and Joseph now, but who were they back then? Joseph wasn't a king. Mary wasn't a queen. They weren't rich or powerful or influential. They were in the eyes of the world just nobodies engaged to be married in a little town called Nazareth. It was kind of the hick town of the day. No major influence, no major trade, just a small town filled with poor people just trying to make it. This is what we see when we look at the genealogy of Jesus. When it seems like God has forgotten about the promises he's made. When it's been 2,000 years since he made the promise. When there's been 400 years of absolute silence. When the Davidic line was disappearing into obscurity. Dwindling away through barrenness, through famine, slavery, the splitting of kingdoms, when all hopes seem lost, and perhaps God has altogether forgotten about his promise. The last verse says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. To Joseph and Mary, Jesus was born, who is the Christ. What we're seeing here is that When it comes to God's promises, we can't judge God by our calendars. When it comes to God's promises, we can't can't measure him by our measurements of time. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to us at just the right time, that Jesus died for us at just the right time. God may appear to be very slow. It may even seem like he has completely forgotten, but he never forgets his promises. And when his promises finally come true, it will always be greater than we could have ever imagined. You know, as Abraham received this promise, and as he's imagining, I wonder how he's going to fulfill this promise. I guarantee you, he didn't have Jesus in mind. Jesus was greater than Abraham could have ever imagined. When David imagined, I wonder who this king is going to be that's going to reign forever. I guarantee you, when he saw King Jesus finally be born, it was greater than he ever imagined in his mind. The genealogy of Jesus shows us that our God is faithful to keep his promises. This means that you never have to wonder, has God forgotten me? You never have to wonder that. You never have to wonder, has, Jesus, has God finally just had it with me? Has he abandoned me? Because God has promised us in Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. As Aaron talked about this morning, God is with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That's his promise to you as his people. This means that you never have to wonder, will God forgive me? You never have to question if your sin is just too much for God to forgive. Because God has promised us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Just small sins that's manageable, small sins that we've already repented from, small things that we've already changed our behaviors from. No, all unrighteousness. And when you're sitting around and you're thinking, this sin, this Sin again, I'm struggling with the same thing again. It's been years, and it seems like I haven't changed. When the slowness of your sanctification is making you doubt your salvation, I wonder if I'm even saved. I don't see any change in my life. Trust in God's promise. 
in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will finish that good work at the day of Christ Jesus. The greatest promise that God's people had all throughout the Old Testament was that Jesus would come. And what we see in the genealogy of Jesus that even when all hope seemed lost, God kept that promise. And what's the greatest promise that you and I have received? What's the greatest promise that you and I have received as God's people now? The greatest promise that you and I have received as God's people now is that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus is coming back. The greatest promise that God's people received in the Old Testament is that Jesus would come. The greatest promise that we have received in the New Testament is that Jesus is coming back. But church, when's the last time you thought about that promise? When's the last time you thought about the promise that Jesus is coming back? I'm afraid that we are exactly in the same predicament today as God's people were back in Matthew's day. It's been over 2,000 years, right? It's been over 2,000 years since God made this promise that Jesus would come back. And I don't think our problem is that we become hopeless and weary and tired of waiting for Jesus to return. I think our problem is that we've all altogether forgotten about the promise. We don't even think about the promise. We're not waking up in the morning wondering, I wonder if it's gonna be today. Have you done that? When's the last time you've done that? And do you believe that the greatest promise that God has made to us is that Jesus is coming back? The greatest promise he has ever promised to us, and yet, when's the last time we woke up in the morning thinking, I wonder if it's today? When's the last time we've celebrated New Year's Eve and there's a countdown, 10, 9, 8, and and you stopped in in the craziness of that moment to think, you know what, maybe this year, maybe this year Jesus is coming back. Make no mistake, our God is a God who keeps his promises and Jesus will come back. The question is, will you be ready to receive him? The question is, when he comes back, will we be found faithful? So that's the first thing we see in the genealogy of Jesus. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. It's so applicable for us, you and I, today, 2,000 years after receiving our greatest promise that Jesus is coming back. We might forget, but he'll never forget. The second thing that we see in the genealogy of Jesus is that the only way to receive all those precious promises of God is by grace alone. It's by grace alone. Because look who's in the genealogy. We see a man like Abraham, right? Who we might think as a great man, the father of faith, and that's true. But did you know that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was taken away not once, but twice into different kings' harems because Abraham told them that Sarah was his sister so that they wouldn't kill him on account of her beauty so that they would treat him favorably. But he was also that kind of a man. Look who else is in there in verses two and three. Jacob is in there, who we know to be a liar and a deceiver. Judah is in there. Matthew could have just said, Judah, the father of Perez, and Perez, the father of Hezron. You see that? He could have just said that. Judah, the father of Perez, and Perez, the father of Hezron. But instead, he's explicitly pointing out something. What is he pointing out? He says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. By Tamar, he says. You might think, oh, big deal. Tamar must have been Judah's wife. 
No, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. It was an incestuous relationship. It's a messed up story. You can read it for yourself in Genesis 38. It's worse than anything you've ever seen on Jerry Springer's show. And if you don't know who Jerry Springer is, good, keep it that way. Matthew is explicitly highlighting it, and he's showing us that God chose to bring the Messiah through that incestuous union. Can you believe that? Who else is in there? Rahab is in verse five. Rahab wasn't just a non-Israelite, non-Jew. She wasn't just a Canaanite. She was a prostitute in Jericho. God puts her in the genealogy and brings the Messiah through the lineage of a prostitute. Who else is in there? Well, King David is in there. Finally, you might think, right? Finally, somebody good and honorable. After all, David is known as a man after God's own heart, right? But that's not what Matthew highlights. Look at verse six. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, it says. He could have just said, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, the man after God's own heart, and David, the father of Solomon. He could have said that, and it would have been correct, right? But instead, again, Matthew was pointing out something explicit, and he says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. By the wife of Uriah, he says. Uriah, who was he? He was one of David's mighty men. He was one of David's best friends that rode with him in battle. Uriah was a man who risked his life for David over and over and over again. But one day, David saw Uriah's wife taking a bath, and he wanted her. And so he had Uriah killed, and he took her to be his wife. And that's how Solomon was born. Matthew is explicitly, specifically writing adultery and murder into Jesus' genealogy. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing that it's deliberate? He could have skirted around it, but he doesn't. Why is Matthew doing this? If you finally give in to one of those Ancestry.com ads, you know, you're like, okay, I saw it a hundred times. I'm going to finally give in. I'm going to give him my blood, send him my vial of blood, um, and you get your DNA test result back, and it says, congratulations, you're ancestors were murderers and prostitutes who committed incest, what would you do with that result? you keep it quiet, right? You'd be like, nobody got to know, right? <laughs> More than that, though, Matthew was living in a culture and a time when your genealogy meant everything. Back then, your genealogy wasn't your genealogy. It was your resume. It was your pedigree. It was essentially the way in which you endorsed yourself to the world. This, these, this is the line through which I come. This is my father. This is his father, right? And oftentimes back then, they even altered their genealogy, erased people off the people that, that brought shame and embarrassment to their bloodline. But Matthew is showing us that God did the very opposite. When it comes to the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, God invited liars, he invited prostitutes and adulterers. How about incest and murder? Jesus says, you're welcome. You're welcome into my family line. He's including them. He's owning them. He's not ashamed of them. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, his sisters. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to claim you, that's my brother. Yeah, but do you know what he did? That's my brother. That's my sister. He's not ashamed of you. 
The other absolutely countercultural thing about Jesus' genealogy is that it included women. Five women, in fact. In Matthew's day, women were absolutely ignored. Ignored in genealogies, for sure. But when it came to showing off your pedigree, right? Mothers didn't matter. Daughters didn't matter. Only thing that counted was who the father was and which son he had. But God welcomes women into Jesus' family line as if to say the status of women will forever be changed by the coming of the Messiah. Another thing that would have been shocking to the Jews who were Matthew's original audience was that there were Gentiles included in Messiah's bloodline. Gentile is anybody who's not an Israelite. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was from Canaan. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. God welcomes Gentiles into Jesus' bloodline as if to say, when it comes to the family of Christ, there is no wrong race. There is no wrong color. Every single person listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, if you go back and if you read Leviticus 18, if you read Deuteronomy 23, they were excluded from entering into God's presence. They were excluded because of what they did, because of who they were, and if they tried to enter God's temple, they would have been struck dead. But what we're seeing is that all of these people who were excluded previously from God on the basis of their own merit, on the basis of their own righteousness and their own identity, are now being invited in on the basis of Jesus' merit, on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and his identity. Ultimately, what Matthew is showing us is that the only way, the only way that we can be recipients of God's precious promises is by grace, is by grace alone, through Christ alone. Many are the promises of God, the Bible says, and they are yes in him. They are yes in Christ. In other words, what? They are no everywhere else. Many are the promises of God. The answer to those promises are all no's outside of Christ, but all yes in Christ. Here's the thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both at the same time as inclusive as it can be and as exclusive as it can be. At the same time, as inclusive as it can be and as exclusive as it can be. On the one hand, it's as inclusive as it can be. Who can be a part of the family line of Jesus? Who can be a part of the family of God? What does the gospel say? The gospel says anybody. Anybody can. The gospel says anybody is welcome. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. There is no wrong gender when it comes to being a part of God's family. And so in God's church, women should never feel belittled. They should never be taken advantage of. But they should always be honored. Always be protected. Why? Because they're God's daughters because they're God's daughters, and they're our sisters. And it doesn't matter if you're from China, Iraq, Mexico, India, or the US, there is no wrong race. There is no wrong color when it comes to the family of God. And so if you're here and you're a part of the majority culture here at the Austin Stone, basically if you're a white American here at the Austin Stone, I want you to be welcoming, welcoming of those who you recognize to be from a different culture, different color. They look different from you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Welcome them into our church. Welcome them into your homes. Not just our church, into your homes. 
The diversity of your hospitality should be as diverse as God's kingdom. And if you're here and you're part of the minority culture like me, I want you to know that you're welcome. You're welcome here. We're so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. And second, I want you to do something. I want you to commit to stay. I want you to commit to stay. And if you stay, what'll probably happen is at some point or another, you'll be offended. You'll be offended, you'll hear something. Some people could say some ignorant things. Not on purpose, but because they're ignorant. You might, you might be offended every now and then. You might feel like you're misunderstood every now and then. You might feel out of place every now and then. I'm a pastor here and I feel those things sometimes. But whatever the cost is, whatever the price is that we have to pay in order to stay here and be a part of the minority culture, I think it's a price worth paying. And I think it's a price that Jesus is pleased for us to pay. Because I don't know about you, but when this life is done and we're all sitting around the throne in glory, right? I don't want to think, being surrounded by people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, I don't want to think, wow, I didn't know God's family to be this way. I didn't know how diverse God's family is. I don't want to think that way. I want to think I knew it to be this way. I knew, I knew Jesus would include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Why? Because I just got a little taste of it. Because I just got a little glimpse of it at the Austin Stone. I want us to be a church like that, right? Let us be a, 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 let us be a reflection of what we're all going to be like one day in glory. And so it doesn't matter what gender you are, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are in the family of Christ, and one more, it doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care if you've lied, cheated, committed adultery, incest, or murder, you are welcome into Jesus's family. You are welcome in this church. Jesus is not ashamed of you. We are not ashamed of you. You can never out God's grace. Can't do it. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, the Bible says. The gospel of Jesus Christ says anybody's welcome. It's as inclusive as it can be. But on the other hand, it's as exclusive as it can be. If you found a Chinese Christian man who was a murderer and asked, how did you enter into the family of Christ? His answer would be, by grace, by grace alone. If you found a Christian woman living in India who was a prostitute and you asked her, how did you enter into the family of Christ? Her answer would be, by grace, by grace alone. If you found a Christian UT student or a Christian working at Dell or a Christian stay-at-home mother and you asked them, how did you enter into the family of Christ? What would their answer be? It's as exclusive as it can be by grace, by grace alone by the grace purchased for me, by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus alone. We just looked at what Matthew called the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But Revelation 13 tells us that there's another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in this book are the names of every single person that belongs to Jesus, past, present, and future. And just like there were some messed up people who did messed up things in the genealogy of Jesus, there's going to be some messed up people who did messed up things in the Lamb's book of life. People like me, people like you, because the gospel of Jesus Christ says anybody's welcome. Anybody's welcome. I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done. You might be saying, but you don't know what I've done. I don't, but Jesus knows. 
And his grace is bigger than your sin. And he's welcoming you today. Anybody is welcome, but the only way you can enter is by the grace purchased by the cross of Jesus alone. And so if you're here today, and if you've never trusted in Jesus, this Jesus, if you've never known him and placed your faith in him to be the promised one, the appointed one, the Messiah, I want you to do it today. Do it today. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He's the one through whom every family of the earth will be blessed. You've been living your life trying to find your blessing in all these other places, right? You've been living your life trying to find your happiness, your significance, your meaning, and all these other things. But what the Bible says is in him, in Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's only in Jesus you will find your true happiness. It's only in Jesus you will find your true meaning and significance. But on the other hand, he's the king of kings. We can't approach him and demand these things of him. Okay, I'm gonna be happy. I'll, give, I'll try you out, right? But as soon as you don't, I'm out. No, on the other hand, he's the king of kings. And so the way, only way we could approach him is as our king, submitting ourselves to him, not him submitting himself to us. And if you're here and Jesus has saved you and you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, I want you to ask yourself, and so have you been trying to seek in him your blessing? Have you been trying to seek in him and find in him your happiness, your meaning, your significance? That's the promise of the Bible. In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Or have you been pursuing all sorts of other things? Have you been treating him as your king? Is he the king of kings over your life? When you approach him in the morning and open up the scriptures, is your, is your posture to him, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you tell me to go, I will go. Why? Because you're my king. And I want you to ask yourself, who's, who's the anybody in your life? Gospel says anybody's welcome. But who are the people in your life that you've written off because they're so this and they're so that, but the gospel says they're welcome? Is it your family member? Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your roommate, one of your friends? Or is it an entire people group across the ocean? Make a commitment today to share this great gospel that has been entrusted to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we open it up and when we look at it, it shows us who you are, that you are a God who keeps your promises. And Lord, especially when things seem dark and seems like you're being too slow and it seems like you've altogether forgotten and it's seeming like you've forgotten makes us forget your great promises, Lord. We thank you that you are a God when you don't seem like you're working, you're at work. And we thank you that we see that improve in the birth of Jesus and we ask that you would make us a people who long for his return, that you would make us a people who don't forget the greatest promise that we have ever received, that your son, he has come, but not only that, he is coming back. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus today, I want you to know that he is the promised one.
Without you even knowing it, God made a promise to you. God made a promise to this world that one day he would send the Christ, the appointed one, the chosen one, the one through whom every family of the earth will be blessed, the king of kings who would reign forever. Today, if you hear his voice, not my voice, today, if you hear his voice calling you to place all of your hopes and dreams and trust In this Christ, will you do it now? The best way you know how, will you pray and ask him to save you? Will you tell him that you trust in him? Will you tell him that you want to find all of your blessings, all of your happiness, satisfaction, significance, meaning in him? And will you tell him that you want to live as one of his subjects? that you want him to be the absolute reigning king over your life. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves and we ask that you would do that work now and continue to do that work. But we pray that you would make us proclaimers, shares of this great gospel that you have entrusted to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.